As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, obviously, numerous assets across, uh, you know, across the market have been crushed. But, you know, one of the things, you, you know, math says that uh, something could go down 90 percent <laughs> and it actually could go down another and it could go down another 90 percent. It could go down from there. So there is this question of like, well, are, is there real value at some point that's going to emerge out of this rubble? Or is it really just a lot of uh, trash that's going to zero? Yeah. The thing that kind of worries me is, when it comes to valuations is, you know, people talk a lot about the, the Ponzi-nomics yeah. of things like cryptocurrencies, but then, or just the idea that the only value they get is by money continuously va- right. flowing into them. But then I kind of, I worry that you could make that case for a lot of traditional assets as well, stocks and bonds, right? So we've just seen valuations go up and up and up, seemingly without limit, which kind of means that on the downside, maybe they can go go much further than you would normally think. Well, and I guess the question, too, is, you know, like cryptocurrencies aren't bolstered by like free cash flows or like some sort of cash in the bank that eventually makes it valuable. But in a company, you know, The question is, do the unit economics work? Is there an actual business model? So you can have money losing companies that might still be worth something because there's like a business model there to be salvaged. But if you get a lot of companies that really in no economic conditions, whether it's boom times or busts, have something that is actually a business model that could be turned into something that can generate cash flow, then right, you can get into the situation which the only reason they were going up is because of investor money. And when that's gone, Perhaps the assets are worth zero. Yeah, exactly. And it just feels like there's so much uncertainty at the moment. And of course, the big wild card is the backdrop of inflation, which we haven't really had to deal with before, right? Normally, if things started going a little bit weaker in terms of the economy, we would expect the central bank to step in and do something, you know, provide some support, and that would lift valuations up once again. That doesn't seem like it's going to happen this time around. That's a very new dynamic, and it wasn't even in place, you know, obviously in 2008, 2009, when there was an aggressive response to the downturn. Anyway, enough of our talk, because I'm really excited about our guest, someone who knows a lot about the state of the world, valuations, whether uh, whether assets are cheap or whether it's just more uh, ponzonomics all the way down. We are going to be speaking with Jim Chanos. He is the co-founder of Chanos & Company, which uh, used to be called Kinecos. He's probably one of the most famous hedge funders slash short sellers. 
in the world, on Wall Street, really needs no introduction. So let's bring him straight in. Uh, <laughs> so Jim, we just did one. <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. I don't think we've ever had you before, so this is a real uh, thrill to have you on. Thanks for having me, guys. But I, w- I would say that uh, you know, being a famous hedge funder or, or even worse, short seller is a pretty low bar these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you said something that has really stuck with me for the last two years, and I want to start the conversation here. You know, it's summer 2020, and the stock market, after plunging in March, had started surging, and people were really going into a lot of these like sort of like internet companies and like Ubers and Grubhubs and all of these, uh, you know, tech companies that recently IPO'd. And you said something interesting. You're like, if they're not making money now, uh, and I don't remember your exact words, but you said, if they're not making any money now, when all of us, so many people are stuck home ordering online and so forth, if they're not making any money now, when are they ever going to make money? If not in the beautiful, perfect economic conditions of everyone in uh, uh, in summer of 2020, order buying so much online. Is that still the case? Like, have any of these companies made any progress to having a business model? So the companies we were talking about were some of the the, the gig economy uh, yeah. darlings in 2020 and 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 continued to be so in 2021. And you know, we we like to drill down not only in the financials of the business, but also the business models and and to see if they make sense. And what became pretty apparent to us in a number of them, particularly some of the, the well-known companies like Uber and Lyft and, and DoorDash, uh, which came public uh, later, uh, is that the unit economics were terrible. And, and not only that, they were terrible at a time when they should have been nirvana, as you point out. The, the, for example, food delivery, when everybody was getting checks from the government and stuck at home um, and, and restaurants were going out of their way to make delivery you know, uh, acceptable and easy. And yet the, the food delivery companies still couldn't make money um, because there were just too many people with outstretched hands earning fees. And so, you know, it got, it got to the point where narratives by 2021, the first, first quarter of 2021, which was sort of the peak of the craziness, narratives trumped everything. And if you had a story and you mm. could spin it about, about, uh, you know, future size of market and profitability by 2030, you could go public, uh, uh, you know, do a SPAC. Uh, and, and unlike the dot-com era, um, where those kinds of sort of uh, uh, pie-in-the-sky uh, uh, stories had, you know, two, three, four, sometimes $5 billion valuations, um, in this case, they had 20, 30, 40, sometimes even $80 billion valuations. And, and that's why we sort of called it the dot-com era on steroids, because mm. we're setting aside the profitable companies, you know, the, the, the sort of legitimate Silicon Valley companies. I'm talking about the, the stuff at the end of the whip. Um, and, and, you know, that's what was sort of shocking to us was just how big people were paying for the, the you know, in effect, the option value that the business would be worth something, you know, possibly someday even though the, the business model was certainly unproven in 2020 and 2021. And, and that, that's to us probably the most striking part of what happened um, in the markets in Silicon Valley versus, say, 20 years ago. So one of the things about being a short seller is that 
it can also it can often be a fraught emotional experience for many many months and even years until you're sort of proven right or the market turns your way so i i'm curious what have the past few years been like for you mm. you know watching some of these companies that you know aren't um generating earnings some of them aren't even cash flow positive and seeing them attract loads and loads of money and then how are you feeling right now because it does seem like some of the air is getting kicked out of the valuation tires of uh, of these companies that you have long been uh, been criticizing or targeting yeah so really uh, what happened uh, the, the sort of ride of the valkyries of the short side was was sort of kicked off at, at when Powell uh, reversed course at Christmas of 2018. Uh, you remember the uh, you know the, the markets had gone down almost 20 percent, and and high yield was ticking up, and and they were tightening gradually and and completely reversed course. Um, and and by the way, the real GDP was roughly two percent in the fourth quarter of 18, and two percent in the first quarter of 19. There was there was nothing going wrong with the economy. But he blinked, uh, and and that that turbocharged the markets in 2019, um, and then with the pandemic, um, you saw just the unprecedented both monetary and fiscal support, and and also I would point out in the fall of 2019 when we saw a widespread reduction in retail commissions. If you remember, everybody went to zero commissions, and you had the advent of Robinhood and and right. um, and, and Ameritrade and Schwab all all advertising. And that's when we saw retail begin to pour into the market. Prior to that, for the 10 years of the bull market from 2009 to 19, retail was basically buying, you know, index funds and, and ETFs and, and basically, you know, uh, sort of investing reasonably. But starting in the fall of 2019, everybody decided to pick stocks and buy options. And you can see it in the price chart of, say, Tesla or whatever. The high flyers really began to go in October of 19. And uh, you know they 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 took a speed bump in in March of 2020 with the pandemic, but but as soon as the Fed opened the spigots, it was back to the races, and it really went on until sort of the first quarter of 2021, which was a, a period unlike anything you know I've seen in my 40 years of being on the short side. Yeah. Uh, it was it was the meme stocks, um, but what was really striking to me was the fact by February of 2021. For a couple week period, SPACs were raising new SPACs were raising on average three billion in cash every night, mm. and and that was equal to the U.S. savings rate. Um, so the so for a brief period of time, SPACs were taking the entire U.S. savings rate, which just struck me as the height of absurdity. Um, and 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 so you know uh, most stocks peaked out in that first quarter, first half of 2021, and and. You know our performance uh, uh, hit its bottom there, and uh, and and really began kind of climbing in the summer of 2021. Even though the market made a new high in the fall, um, a lot of stocks began to falter. Um, and then we saw uh, in our portfolio, and I think overall we we began to see disasters, things like Peloton, and Robinhood, and DraftKings, and and you know stocks that were suddenly. <clears throat> Darlings were suddenly down 50, 60, 70 percent um, on on perceived, you know, bad news. And and that was before that was, you know, as the market was peaking in, in October, November. So some of these gig economy companies that you mentioned in the beginning, their unit economics, 
They just didn't work. Too many fees, even under the best conditions. You know, some of those names you just mentioned, like a Robin Hood, Peloton, et cetera, like how do you think about any value for them now? Because it doesn't seem like in theory that it should be impossible for Robinhood, I mean, I guess they don't charge fees, so maybe that is maybe that is tough. It doesn't seem like it should be impossible for those to be viable businesses. Like, at what point, I guess, like, how do you think about how far this could go? Well, I mean, like anything, we we look at, uh, you know, we look at what is our upside and downside and try to structure our trades accordingly. Um, but but you know, for for a money losing a money losing financial generally trade slightly below tangible book value. I mean, that's where the Chinese banks trade. That's where the European banks trade who are profitable. Um, but people don't trust the numbers and trust the model long term. So I would say that, that you know, some of the, the, the money losing brokers like Coinbase or Robinhood or some of the fintech companies, which was another absurdity uh, foisted on the market in, in 2020 and 2021, um, you know, those stocks are going to probably trade below book value, slightly below book value. And for some of these companies, that's a long way down. Do you think something changed in terms of fundamental investor behavior that allowed us to get to the 2020-2021 point? Or is this just what we've seen before? I mean, most notably with the tech bubble, like we can have yeah. instances where valuations go absolutely crazy. Or did something actually happen that makes this period unique in some way? I, I think there's a, uh, Tracy, I think there's a confluence of events. In, in, if you remember that in the tech bubble, it was primarily tech, right? Uh, there were a lot of value stocks that actually held up pretty well in the, in the, in the uh, ensuing bear market. It's where a lot of hedge funds made their reputation, for example, mm. being short the garbage and long value in, in 1999 to 03. And, and, and so you had this one pocket of insanity based on, on a narrative, um, the, the internet, and, and everything else was kind of you know, reasonably priced, given where rates were and the economy. And remember, the recession that we had in 01, 02 was pretty mild. It was a business-driven uh, recession. It didn't really affect the consumer at all. Um, and so this go-around, it's almost everything. And that's what's so, that's what's so interesting. Um, you know, it was not only technology, but th think about things like cap rates in real estate, you know, down yeah. at 3%, 4%, and, and, and crypto and NFTs and, and, and just a wide variety. I mean, I still have lots of shorts in my portfolio where the companies are barely profitable and they're trading it at, 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 you know, 30 times cash flow and 40 times cash flow still, even after the decline. And, and I think that, that, um, the one thing that, that people are not prepared for is interest rates resetting meaningfully higher because they just haven't, it hasn't happened in, in most investors' lifetimes. I came on the street in 1980, just as rates were peaking. And, and, and so the idea that, that actually interest rates are not going to be two or 3% for the foreseeable future is going to be hard for a lot of investors to, to, to deal with. If we go back to, you know, what I would think would be more reasonable rates um, based on, uh, on what we're seeing in the economy and inflation, whatever, uh, this market will not be able to handle five or six percent tenure. I mean, it just won't. And, and so uh, so many business models are, are that we look at are just 
extremely low return on invested capital because capital's been so plentiful for the last, you know, 12 years. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You mentioned the fintechs, you mentioned the gig economies. When you look at like just terrible business models or business models that can only possibly survive under the cheapest, most abundant capital, what else is out there that uh, looks uh, egregious? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's almost the whole cross-section of REITs just seems absurd to us that you're going to be buying you know, apartment buildings at a 3% cap rate. That's before capital spending. Uh, that's pre-tax yeah. with the 10-year at 330 today. Um, I mean, this just makes no sense. And, and office buildings and, and warehouse. I mean, just go across the board. Data centers. I mean, it, it's just it is it, we've gotten so used to feasting on these ultra low interest rates that I don't think people realize, you know, what where equities will trade in a, in a resetting market where, where risk free rates are, are four or five percent. And I think that's that's a, a big area. But even things like electric utilities and and huh. and consumer packaged good companies. I mean, these things are all still trading at 25, 30 times earnings. And and I think that 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 they've seen, been seen as defensive because they're not technology. But at this point, they may have as much risk as the tech stocks. So. You know, I hesitate to ask you for a price target on the S&P 500, but could you give an indication of how low you think things could go? And also, what do you think is the most overvalued at the moment and the most vulnerable to higher rates? I, I mean, I, I'm long the S&P 500 in my hedge fund, just FYI. Right. So, so yeah, so so we're long the broad market and short short our radioactive sort of group of companies. So just get that out there right. for full disclosure. So I don't really... I don't have a target for the S&P. I, I, I do think that the S&P is, you know, corporate profits, which for years have been mean reverting, have not been. And, and you know, this has been a golden age for the corporation in terms of profitability and valuations. And, you know, that, that remains to be seen, whether those profit margins will hold up longer term. They're at record levels. So, I you know, I don't know where the S&P can trade. That, that, that's a that's my cop-out answer. I know that that some of the stuff we're in just trades at such extreme premiums to that 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 you know if if the market does no goes nowhere, I think we're going to do just fine on our short portfolio. What's um, what's most overvalued to you? 
Right now, I, I right now I, I think that if you can find any companies, and there are a lot of them, that are earning you know low to mid single digits return on capital, things like uh, the real estate industry, for example, or, or a number of consumer companies, a number of companies in the ESG space like solar, um, or just the the unit economics are just crappy, and 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 but there's a narrative, um, and and where there's leverage. Um, and there are lots and lots of these names out there. Um, those are going to, I think, you know, be be problematic going forward if uh, if rates drift higher. Because again, people just are are used to financing things at two and three percent, and those days may be over. Mm. Man, I have, a, I have a million questions. You know, certainly, yeah. you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, we're not going to get the Jim Chano's S and P end of twenty twenty two S and P uh, forecast. But I am curious more broadly. <laughs> Because everyone's like, is this the bottom? Is this the bottom? You've seen these cycles. Obviously, there was the dot-com era. You've seen lots of other crashes. How should people think about what it looks like, not from a numerical perspective per se, but what what it looks like when the pain ends or what other things people might look for and say, okay, this is now, this is is what bottoms kind of look like. What I've been kind of surprised at, and and this sort of, again, to use the, the... It's never exactly the same, but to use the 2000 analog, I've been kind of surprised since November just how much retail investors continue to want to speculate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and that that to me has been uh, one of the things that's kept me, you know, as exposed on the short side, you know, in our hedge fund and short fund as I have been. I mean, you know, Kathy Wood was getting, you know, inflows uh, for most of the first quarter, um, in some cases, record inflows. And we see it in the meme stocks that people were still speculating every time the market, you know, started stopped going down, the meme stocks would jump. Uh, and every and every time the market stops going down, my shorts typically go up thirty to forty, fifty percent in two weeks. Um, and and that's exactly what they did in two thousand and two thousand one and two thousand two. Um, and and people just are, are still, I still want to believe that that this is the bottom. Uh, that I'm. You know, I'm going to make my stand here, and I don't know, but I, I do know that the the willingness, particularly of the people who came late to the party, the the retail investor buying individual stocks or options to still speculate, is still there, and 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 it's it's somewhat shocking to me. Now, this latest swoon and the crypto sell off we're seeing may dampen some of that. We'll have to see, but that's been one of the surprises to me is just just how much people are willing to, to, to keep come in and, and when the market sort of stops going down, buy the most speculative stocks uh, for a bounce. So we've been talking obviously a lot about the sort of the retail angle because that really does sort of dominate the story maybe since the end of 2018 or middle of uh, 2019 when the free trade started. Yeah. But the other big, one of the big stories of the last 12 years or maybe much longer, and I know that you've uh, been critical of it, is uh, the opposite, the PE industry, institutional, and like the degree to which that has been this sort of like one-way train up. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're skeptical of some of the marks they've had over the years. Yeah. Like, is this going to be the end for some of these highly, especially if interest rates go to where you're talking about them? Yeah. Is this going to be the end for some of these more leveraged models? So a couple of things about, about the private equity industry. Um, I, I suspect they're about to have the same reality check that hedge funds had after the global financial crisis. 
So as we, we talked about a little earlier, you know, hedge funds made their chops in the first, you know, first seven or eight years of, of this century, right? They were short the, the dot-com uh, garbage. They were long value. And both of those trades paid off from 2000 to, to 07 in a big way. And, and hedge funds began to attract large amounts of assets. And it completely fell apart in the GFC. Most, most equity hedge funds, we're talking about equity hedge funds here, most equity hedge funds were, were, were net long and, and, and buying you know, value all the way down and got killed. Um, and, and hedge funds have had a rough go of it ever since, really, quite frankly. Um, think about private equity. Uh, private equity it has had two major developments at their wind at their back for the last you know, 40 years, but particularly for the last certainly 12 years. And, and that is massively declining interest rates and rising equity values. And so if you are a leveraged buyer of equities, that has been a massive tailwind. And what is shocking to me, and I allocate capital, I sit on some investment committees, so I see the private equity numbers, I, I hear the pitches. What is shocking to me is that if you were buying a, a portfolio of stocks leveraged two or three to one, that you would expect to be doing a hell of a lot better than the S&P 500 over the past 12 years or the Russell, right. um, you know, even net of fees. And the fact of the matter is that's not really been the case. And, and I think that's going to be one of the biggest problems for private equity is the fact that, that, that you know, the returns net of fees and, and adjusted for leverage have gotten a lot more pedestrian in the last handful of years. And if we're going to revalue interest rates structurally higher, where you're not going to get easy exits and the IPO market, you know, uh, closes down, you know, then private equity is going to have some heavy weather of it. And, and it has been the, the asset of choice for institutional investors. There's mm. no doubt about that. And, and I think that, that, you know, that, that alone tells me that, that if, if you're big in private equity, uh, you, you ought to be taking a look at your allocations and understanding you own leveraged equity. And just because they don't market, you know, uh, promptly doesn't mean you're not taking the risks. And that, that, that's my concern about private equity. So just to broaden that point out a little bit, you know, it, we are at the point now where some people are drawing parallels to um, 2008 and the financial crisis and, or, you know, they say, oh, we're going to get there. But the difference that you often hear stated between 2008 and now is the reduction in leverage in the financial system. And yeah. I, I'm curious what you think about the degree of leverage that may or may not be out there. Because, you know, especially with something like crypto, it feels like it's such a new asset class and it's quite hard to track. It feels like there could be linkages there that we just don't really have a good sense of at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, we we clearly, you know, the the warning signs were everywhere back in 06 and 07 because you could see it on the balance sheets, right, of the banks and the brokers. They were just getting more right. and more levered, and they were getting more and more levered to to so-called level two and level three assets, which were were harder and harder to value. And in this go around, you know, I think that that the oh, the generals basically always fight the last war, right? And we 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 regulated the banking system pretty tightly after the GFC. And so I, I don't think there's systemic banking risk out there in terms of, of the need for government intervention and, and what we saw in 08 and 09. It's, it's much more diffuse and, and it's much more 
it's much more uh, localized and things like crypto. And as you say, the, the sort of is, is there hidden leverage in that system? My guess is there is, but we'll, we'll find out probably shortly. And then other mechanisms. Uh, we haven't talked about fintech, but, you know, mm. sort of the shadow yeah. shadow banking world of fintech, which, you know, I've, I've been joking now for a while. It's just simply subprime lending, <laughs> you know, done on an app. You know, we'll find we'll find bodies floating to the surface probably there before all is said and done as well. I, I don't think the systemic issues though are the same, and every every bull market has its own flavor, and and this one was not as debt driven, you know, as it would relate to to I think risk to the banking system. Now, there's plenty of leverage out there and corporate leverage, and 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 again, uh, I think the risk it might not be credit risk; it might be rate risk. That's you know, a whole different, that was the seventies. And that's a whole different kettle of fish than, than sort of these deflationary credit shocks we had uh, in the past 20 years. So again, we'll, we'll have to see. Now, if you want to talk about systemic problems and, and, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of them elsewhere around the globe. And then on top of it, I think you've got geopolitical issues that are probably, you know, uh, really, really uh, different from the last, uh, last 10 to 20 years, you know, the, 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 the rise of uh, China and, and, you know, for God's sakes, we have a land war going on in Europe right now. Uh, you mentioned fintech for a second, and you also mentioned it earlier in the chat. Like, can you tell, what is it about this particular industry and the way it's structured? I don't even know what fintech is, to be honest. Sometimes, like, I don't know yeah. if it's lending or trade, whatever it is, but yeah. what is it about fintech that causes you to focus some, or that you see such egregious valuations in business models? Fintech is a label yeah. used to get higher valuations. I know. That's I, how I, I know Tracy it. has strong opinions on fintech. <laughs> I need to interview her sometime all about it. And it furthermore since the advent of the internet, it really has boiled down to we have a way of figuring out what people who generally don't pay back their loans will pay back their loans. So our, we have algorithms and we have big data and we have all of these things that these stodgy bank and credit rating agencies and, and, and consumer mm. credit companies haven't figured out. And we're going to get people to, to, to pay us back who are paying us. Uh, we're lending lots of money to at big, big rates and fees. And every down cycle, you know, since 98 has seen those companies blow up because it turns out they didn't have a better mousetrap. They just had the credit cycle on their back <laughs> and the, the algorithms didn't didn't work, you know, when things got tough. And I think this is going to be no different. Uh, I mean, I just, you know, I, I just see the the narratives by by companies that, that claim they figured this out again. And the reality is, is that after 12 years of, of easy credit and, and consumers getting flush with government payments and all kinds of things, you know, everybody looks like a great credit. It's not going to be till till times get tough that you're going to see, you know, where the risks in your, your portfolio are. And um, and this was just another way for Silicon Valley to kind of tell another narrative. But this one's been around for a while. The first uh, fintech companies uh, uh, came out in uh, 98, 99. I have a process question based on that answer, but you, you talked about the idea of the credit cycle at a company's back. When you're making your investments, and in particular when you're assuming short positions, how do you balance the macro environment and your expectations for the broader economy versus company-specific insights that you might have? Because, again, yeah. we kind of hinted at this at, at the beginning in the intro, but it, it's... It, 
I don't want to say it's easy, but you can find a company and say like, wow, that this company has problems. There's a flaw in the business model. But if everything's moving in its favor, if there aren't very many defaults at that particular moment in time, it can kind of go along just fine for, for quite a while. So how do you balance those two things? Yeah. So, um, it, and, and can and does. And so look, what we're trying to find, what we're trying to find particularly apropos Joe's comments at the beginning of our conversation is the biz, does the business look problematic when everything should be going its way? Hmm. Facts, the odds in, in, in the skeptics favor, right? So if you're, if you're, you know, a food delivery company and you're not making money when, when people are throwing money at you and everybody's at home, you know, maybe you have an issue and, and, and maybe the model just doesn't work. And so again, we're looking for businesses that with really low return on invested capital, it's a big, big thing we focus on, you know, what, for every dollar you give them uh, to invest in the business, what do they return? And, you know, for most of corporate America, that number is in, in double digits. It's somewhere, you know, in the, the mid-teens to low-teens. And yet there's just lots of companies out there that the people have thrown money at that are earning 4 5 6% on their capital. And if you're only earning 4 5 or 6% of capital at the top of the business cycle um, with rates at 2 or 3%, you know, you're going to be in trouble. So we try to look at the macro and understand that, that there will be cycles and and to try to find companies that are either unprofitable or or barely profitable, you know, and when things are good, because certainly things uh, when things aren't good, it's gonna they're gonna make heavy weather of it. I should make one other point, Tracy, mm-hmm. and that that's the the other thing that has really struck us in this cycle, which is sort of addresses this question of yours, is the amazing use of pro forma metrics mm-hmm. by by right. corporate America. And, and, you know, the, it's amazing how many companies will report numbers and, and the media will, will dutifully say, you know, Salesforce.com, you know, had, uh, beat expectations and, you know, made so much money. And then you look at the actual financial statements, you see they lost money. And, and you know, this is, this is getting worse and worse. And I think, you know, as it relates to, to the course I teach on fraud, you know, I've been telling my students for the last couple of years that a lot of the disingenuousness in corporate America is happening right in front of you through the aggressive use of, of, of self-defined metrics. And the, the most egregious of which, of course, is adding back share-based compensation, which Silicon yeah. Valley is just you know uh, lavish in using. And as long as we just pay our people in stock, that's, that doesn't count. And I think that virtuous circle is gonna turn into a vicious cycle on the way back down. It already has for some companies. Right, because presumably, uh, if if the if the assumption no longer exists that stocks only go up, then people might actually want more cash. Exactly, and and then you have to run it through your P and L, right. or the, the or the equity. You're just going to have just a lot more dilution. You're going to have to just issue more and more shares right. for a given dollar value, and so you know in a, in in any case. I think that that metric, and, and the, for example, the gig economy companies, they were just masters at this. It just Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, they'll tell you adjusted, they're going to all be adjusted EBITDA positive at some some point in the future. And then you look at the, the numbers and they're losing hundreds of millions of dollars every quarter.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's the best historical analogy for crypto? <laughs> Beanie Babies? That's such, that, is, that that's really actually, NFT, is that all there is? No, that's, that's, that, that's NFTs. Okay. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, but uh, look, you know, the thing about the thing about alternative alternative monetary systems is, is there's a long history of them, yeah. and they tend to they tend to be uh, you know adopted um, or embraced or or, uh, or recommended in good times, not bad times, and and I think that's a really interesting hmm. you know aside that that I, I tell my friends who are kind of heavily invested in the concept of crypto, and it, you know the 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 first guy to think about this I teach in my fraud course was John Law, maybe the greatest financial criminal of all time. <laughs> uh, you know, he wrote about this in 1705 and on, on, on this, this seminal work he did on, on the nature of fiat currencies. And he pointed out that the state should embrace fiat and he knew the risks. He knew the risks of, of debasement and inflation and all of these things that, that the reason why people wanted gold and silver and not paper. But he also made a couple of really interesting observations, and one of which was that in times of stress, and I'm, I'm forgetting his actual you know, term from 1705, but it, that people actually will embrace government-based fiat because the government can adjudicate fraud uh, and contracts. And then he talked about the, the fact that, that a banking system based on that could also offer protection. He didn't say in deposit insurance, so he wasn't that far thinking yet. But it was the first sort of forerunners of that, and the whole idea that when when you know you are you are in in a situation where nobody trusts anything, you actually want the state to back things, and you want the ability of the Federal Reserve to be a lender of last resort, and you want to have the fact right. that you know that if you have two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank, no matter what happens, you still have two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank, and I, and I think that's a really important concept that we kind of forget every time everything's going to the moon. And we're all making lots of money, you know, speculating in things, um, and 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 that's that's the really interesting thing about crypto to me is that a lot of the the concepts behind its adoption early on have proven to basically be not there or wanting. You know, if it was going to be a replacement currency, well, no, it's not. Well, it's going to be a, a uh, diversifying asset. Well, no, it hasn't been. And, and, you know, and, and, and we can check down the list and you know it better than I do. But I do think there was a seminal moment was the interview that you had with Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> that, and I said so at the time, 
I mean, that to me was a bell loud and clear that one of the crypto, you know, giants is telling you, you know, <laughs> flat out. Yeah. A lot you of this stuff shocked. is, yeah. <laughs> is, is, is Ponzi, Ponzi-nomics. And, you know, it, he said the real, real quiet part out loud. And and uh, yeah, that's when you boil down a lot of these structures. That's what they are. So and, and I've called it a predatory junkyard, and I, I stand by that. So I have a philosophical question based on that. But you know, there are a lot of hardcore crypto believers out there, especially of Bitcoin, the Bitcoin maximalists and those types. And they look at something like Bitcoin and say, oh, this is the future of the monetary system and everything is going to change because of this. And then someone like you looks at Bitcoin and presumably says, this is a Ponzi and you know it's just money following money and that's all there is to it. How is it that two different people can look at the same asset like a Bitcoin and come to wildly different conclusions about its worth and its value? So I should say that you know, Bitcoin is the leading currency, sort of like the dollar of, of the crypto mm-hmm. space. And, and, and because of its limited you know, issuance, whatever, I, I have no idea where it's going to trade. But what, what my problem was, was all the ecosystem built around crypto. Mm. That is clearly just uh, rent seeking, and and that's that's been my criticism of the whole space is just all the various staking you know staking things the yield quote unquote yields um, the, the ridiculously high fees they charge you know I've been publicly short Coinbase um, not because I thought you know Bitcoin was going down but because they're over earning and 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 so that to me was really was this this vast ecosystem that sprung up overnight around it to basically extract fees from unsuspecting, primarily retail investors. I'll give you a great example. Um, So if you look at Coinbase's first quarter in 2022, retail trading volume was huge compared to institutional, but they earned almost the revenues, they earned almost a billion in commission revenues from retail traders during the quarter. And they earned only uh, less than 50 million from institutional investors. Turns out that the uh, on a dollar value of trading volume, yeah. retail is paying almost 60 times the the, the rate of uh, of institutions. And and so you know it gets to my point that this is borderline you know predatory behavior in the industry where the fees and and everything else is just just outrageous. Um, not to mention some of the claims. About you know how you're yielding and what your what the economic engine is behind these yields, and that's my complaint with what's going on in crypto is all of the circus around it. Uh, I want to ask you. You mentioned Coinbase, but I got to ask you about another specific company that you've had opinions on over the years. Of course, <laughs> that's Tesla. I know you were shorted for a long time. Then I think you pared back your shorts as it went to the moon, and you know I still obviously it's come back. But it's in a way, you know, it's like the bellwether of the Kathy Wood portfolio. It's also probably like the ultimate meme stock. Does it is it a sustainable company at this point? Like, A, do you have a position on it? But B, um, do you uh, what do you like? What does it look when you look at Tesla right now? What do you see? Well, I see a company. Yes, they they will. They will survive. They've made it past 2018. That was in question. Yeah. As Musk, you know, admitted later. Uh, But no, they they. They certainly, at this point, you know, got past the tipping point. However, it's a big however, they are dramatically over-earning right now. And I think the risk to the stock 
is the fact that, and I do think, by the way, I think it is the bellwether stock in the stock market. I think it's sort of like Cisco was in 1999, mm. where people were just kind of put, hope, putting their hopes and dreams on, you know, any any hardware having to do with the internet, Cisco was going to dominate it. And and it's the same sort of thing now. So whether it's EVs or 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 solar or what have you, you know, Tesla is is seen as the one-stop shopping for that. Yeah. And I think that that accordingly, you know, Tesla still trades at almost 10 times revenues and 30 times gross profits. So it's trading, you know, like like a, a SaaS company or um, but it, it is an auto company. It has gross margins of 30 percent. Now, the risk they have is that almost every other uh, auto company uh, in the world has gross margins of 20 percent. And so Tesla which is earning, you know, trading is just a monster multiple is also trading on a monster multiple of a profit stream that is going to get competed. Mm. And, and that, that is the risk of Tesla that becomes, you know, just an established EV company amongst a whole bunch of established EV companies. And I think that one of the things that people thought was that, you know, the other OEMs would never get their act together. And, and certainly for a while they didn't. But now with the advent of Ford and you know, the F-150 Lightning and, and lots of other products that are both out and coming, you know, it's going to be the auto industry. And, and make no mistake about it, Tesla is a, is a car company. You know, they're building car plants. They're capital intensive. There's one other risk to Tesla that I think is underappreciated by the market. And that is um, this company turned the profitability corner when it opened the China plant. And we and others have a large suspicion that a disproportionate amount of the profits are coming out of Shanghai. And that, of course, you know, raises all kinds of other risks to the multiple um, and, and whether or not they can actually, you know, expate, you know, get, get their hands on that money. And, and I think that's not appreciated by the market as much as it should be. If you look at the company's gross profit margins, it took off as soon as Shanghai, you know, started volume production. Do you and, have uh, a position on Tesla now? Yeah, yeah, we, we're short. We're, we we Still have a short. we have a put position. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know you've been critical of regulators, and you you mm. mentioned earlier that regulators are sort of backward looking and always fighting the last war. And I I guess my question is, why is that? Because you know you look at something like Tesla and Elon Musk and the circus around Twitter, you could easily yeah. make the case that the SEC should be doing something here. Certainly, yeah. if you look at crypto, you could be say you yeah. could certainly make the case they should do something here. And there's very little incentive yeah. for governments to actually let crypto, you know, just run wild. Mm. I mean, especially since a lot of crypto proponents basically say we're trying to create an alternative monetary system to a government-dominated one, but. What's going on? Like, why why don't the regulators get more involved? So, so I've, I've said a couple of things. I've said obviously that that journalists and short sellers, I'm, we're being very self serving here, are real time financial detectives because they're incentivized to to look for things, whereas regulators and, and law enforcement uh, and legislators are, are financial archaeologists. They'll tell you, you know, with much clarity, five or ten years after the fact, why you lost money and why this was fraudulent, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that much of that is political by its very nature. And uh, I've also said that basically uh, the, the, the strongest defense attorney and the harshest prosecutor for any, any company is its stock price. And, and that when everything's going up, 
it's kind of hard to throw stones, particularly politically, to say, okay, well, maybe we should be taking a look at this. Mm. What do you want to do? Stifle innovation? I mean, that was what the securities regulators heard about crypto. And in fact, I mean, it, it, to me, the, the failure of global securities regulators to, to in concert, you know, basically uh, declare most crypto coins um, and schemes securities is a major failing. And, and because they clearly are. And I think that 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 would have stopped a lot of the nonsense that that has subsequently happened if these coins and whoever had to register as securities offerings. I think that's one one easy thing to point at to say, you know, gee, you, you guys dropped the ball on this one. But but as for everything else, it's not until investors start losing money that they begin to 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 get upset with uh, with with people. Look at the look at the meme stocks in January of. Uh, in January of, of 2021, it, you know, when, when Robinhood, uh, because of capital issues, you know, stopped, uh, froze people from from adding to their accounts, people were upset because they couldn't buy more, <laughs> and 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 there were hearings about that. Yeah, you know, these stocks are now down dramatically, but and and they were blaming short sellers, for example, and hedge funds who got run over. Yeah. It, it it was it was like bizarro world. And 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 yet, you know, I, I talked to a lot of congressional staffs at that time, and and you know, they were just hearing from their constituents how outrageous this was, and and you know, these things are politically motivated with a lag. Yeah, it's crazy in retrospect. All these different politicians about the outrage of not being able to add to your GameStop <laughs> position in February twenty twenty one. You know, uh, I I want to go back to something you're talking about uh, rates. Re, uh, resetting and or moving significantly higher. And I don't listen to many podcasts because I don't really have time. But one that I did listen to is one that you did years ago with Matt Klein when he was at the FT. And you talked a bit about the business of short selling and in particular, how short sellers think about rates and the fact that in a ZERP environment, it's kind of no fun or no great because you sell a share, you get cash and you park it somewhere, but you don't get any yield on that right. cash which I had never yeah. heard and no one really talks about that. So like from the, yeah. does the business of short selling get better in this higher rate environment because you can earn yield on the cash that you, uh, talk a little bit yeah. about the business of short selling in a different rate environment. Yeah, so so a big part, so the, the golden age of, of, of short selling alpha was basically you know, the 80s and the late 90s. And, and part of that was due to basically the fact that in, in addition to the fact that, that stocks, you know, it basically fluctuated a lot was that um, on your short sell proceeds, you got 80%, you split with the prime broker, tip, typically 80-20, the cash received, the interest on, on that segregated cash. So when rates were six and five and six and seven percent, you were earning five or six percent on, on the cash. That was a big cushion. Mm. Um, now, obviously, you're obligated to pay any dividends from your short position, but but a lot of shorts, you know, have very low yields or don't pay dividends. That was a, a nice, nice, you know, cushion to the short side. That all went away with ZERP, right? And, and there was another factor that prior to really uh, the GFC, that there was kind of a, a floor on negative rebates at 0%. That in effect, that unless it was a really crazy risk arb situation or something, that it was very rare that you actually had to pay to short something. You might earn a lower interest rate. You might earn 2% instead of 6% on the cash, but you didn't have to pay negative 10 or 20. 
And with the advent of much more transparent market, algorithmic trading, where, where you have these monster books that are long and short, whatever, rebate rates you know, often go negative in hard-to-borrow stocks. And that became a new reality. So you, those two factors definitely impacted your returns on the short side, both relatively and, uh, and, and uh, absolutely. Jim, I think that's a great place to leave it. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours longer, but this was a uh, a real treat. It's kind of crazy it took us so long to have you on, but it seems like perfect timing. So appreciate you uh, coming on Odd Lots. I'm so happy we finally finally got to do it. Thanks, we got to do it again. No yeah. more waiting six years. Next time. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah, Thanks, Jim. That was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Tracy. Well, obviously, that was great. It's a real treat to talk to Jim. Hearing him talk about some of these other areas that aren't tech and how much he sees, like, this sort of what he views as, like, this egregious evaluation is pretty eye-opening. Yeah, and it sort of gets to the um, that Ponzi-nomics yeah. point. Like, obviously, a stock isn't necessarily a Ponzi. You know, a company can have real cash flows and yeah. real potential profits but it does feel like we have had this i guess this overall dynamic of just money flowing into things almost indiscriminately it feels like well you know one thing too is this listening to this and it's sort of obvious but i think it's worth driving home the stakes are extremely high Mm. for whether this question of will inflation essentially be transitory or will like or are we in a new sustained higher inflation higher rate environment because if we really are like the yields are going to continue yeah. to go up, chase it, then that's where you get into, you know, you're talking about utilities or you talk about like REITs. Like, you yeah. know, these are sort of like industries and sectors that aren't particularly sexy by any stretch, but they are very rate sensitive and there's a lot of room for multiples potentially to come down. So to hear him talk about REITs or to hear him talk about data centers or to hear him talk about utilities in the sort of same breath as fintechs and cryptos and gig economy stocks you could see like how high the stakes are for like well where do where do rates end up? What is like terminal? What does the terminal look like? Right, like your entire reputation as an investor is going to come down to whether you get the inflation call right because yeah. that's going to change everything in markets. Right, I mean, arguably it already had, but I mean, still, yeah, like the, there's huge swaths of the market that could be very highly uh, highly affected by what goes on from here. Still, yeah. Anyway, uh, tons to digest there. We got to do, uh, can we do an episode where I interview you about fintechs? <laughs> I mean, I do have thoughts. And it did it did come up recently in our stablecoin episode, yeah. the parallels with P2P. But I do feel like to some extent, like the peer-to-peer bubble or direct lending uh, bubble was like a very nice microcosm of a lot of the trends yeah, that right. we're seeing now. But anyway, um, let's leave it there. Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Jim Chenos, on Twitter. He's at Wall Street Cynic. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Arman. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.